pastors, we probably have the least amount of contact with non-believers. A lot of people don't realize that, but I, I see very few non-believers unless I make an attempt to go somewhere. or Because you know, we're going to church, and most people that come into church are Christians. And so any type of evangelism, any type of sharing of the faith, a lot of time the only way I can do it is, is online. And one of the things that, that I see all the time, and it's been in the news, and, and it just started getting the gears turning and making me think is, has anybody seen some of the recent documentaries in the past two, three years on various things about Jesus? He was married, he had a baby, he, you know, he never died. He, all these different documentaries, they come out every year. And uh, we're due for one pretty soon because Christmas is coming up. So mark my words, there will be a documentary before Christmas on something new and profound about Jesus. Well, this is nothing new, and I wanted to talk about that because I wanted to look at uh, how, how, do we, how do we know that new things that we hear about Jesus aren't true, and, and what if they are, and what can we do? And so I want to look at a passage in Galatians, first of all, and it's going to be up on your screen, or there should be a Bible under your chair if you'd like to look. Galatians chapter 1. And in Galatians, Paul is writing to some churches all throughout the area in what's today known as Turkey, in an area called Galatia. And there were these churches sprinkled throughout. And he was writing to them because he had just gone and planted the church there, and, and they had experienced the Holy Spirit and forgiveness and community and all these things. And then some false teachers had sort of come behind and started undermining Paul's work. Now, they didn't come along and say, don't listen to the gospel, don't listen to Jesus, don't listen to anything, we have something new. They said, hey we've got something that's uh, even more fuller revelation about the gospel, and you need to hear it. And it involves going back to Judaism in that case. And so Paul hears about this, and he writes to them. He says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you another gospel, a gospel other than what you have accepted, let him be eternally condemned. So Paul had given them the gospel, which was the message of salvation. And it was something that they could cling to and that they could hold to. And they had experienced new life, and then all of a sudden somebody came along and started giving them new ideas and tweaking things and messing with things. And Well, that didn't just happen in the New Testament era, because maybe almost 600 years later, there was a, a man who lived in what's today modern Arabia, and he had an encounter that he believed was from God. And from that sprang a whole new religion, a whole new movement in that area, what we know today as Islam. And Talbot's going to be preaching on Islam tomorrow morning as the last of our When Worldviews Collide series. But uh, I, I wanted us to look at exactly how Islam came about because I found the testimony that's written in what's called the Hadith. And the Hadith are the traditions about Muhammad that are passed on and passed on and written down, and they're very sacred to Muslims. And so we have an excerpt from one of the Hadith that tells about this encounter. Uh, the picture there is the cave where Muhammad actually supposedly had the encounter with an angel. Muhammad used to go in seclusion in the cave of Hira, where he used to worship Allah alone, continuously for many days before his desire even to see his family. Suddenly, the truth descended upon him while he was in the cave of Hira. The angel came to him and asked him to read. The prophet replied, I do not know how to read. The prophet added, 
The angel caught me forcefully and pressed me so hard that I could not bear it anymore. He then released me and again asked me to read. And I replied, I do not know how to read. Thereupon he caught me again and pressed me a second time till I could not bear it anymore. He then released me and again asked me to read. But I replied, I do not know how to read. Thereupon he caught me for the third time and pressed me and then released me and said, Read in the name of your Lord who has created all that exists, has created man from a clot. Read, and your Lord is most generous. Let me pause for a second. That was Muhammad's encounter with an angel. And at the time, it scared him to death. So he goes home. He then, really, then Allah's apostle returned with the inspiration and with his heart beating severely. He went to Khadijah. Khadijah was his wife. And said, cover me, cover me. They covered him till his fear was over. And after that, he told her everything that had happened and said, I fear that something may happen to me. Khadijah replied, never. By Allah, Allah will never disgrace you. You keep good relations with your kith and kin, help the poor and the destitute, serve your guests generously, and assist the deserving calamity-inflicted ones. She's reassuring him, saying, no, 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 God's not mad at you. You're a good guy. Khadijah then accompanied with him to her cousin Waraka, who during the pre-Islamic period had become a Christian. He was an old man and had lost his eyesight. Khadijah said to Waraka, listen to the story of your nephew, O oh my cousin. Waraka asked, O oh nephew, what have you seen? Allah's apostle described whatever he had seen. Waraka said, this is the same one who keeps the secrets, the angel Gabriel, whom Allah had sent to Moses. Now this is sort of, this, this is almost scripture in Islam. It's not in the Quran, it's in the traditions, but Muhammad apparently had this encounter, and, and it was an angel. It was something, and it scared him. And it was very forceful, and, and it was terrifying. And, and so he at first was afraid. So he goes home, and he talks to his wife. And she convinces him, no, this, you're good. This is from God. And then she takes him to his cousin, who it says was a Christian, an old man. And he says, no, this is, this is from God. And so from there, the whole religion of Islam sprang up. Did you remember, go to the next slide, if you, do you remember this passage that we just, look at that, isn't that amazing? Why would Paul, 600 years before, write, but if even we or an angel from heaven should come and preach a different gospel, let him be eternally condemned. That's exactly what happened to Muhammad. That's just amazing. Well, what's the different gospel? What did the angel say after he told him to read and he gave him the words of the Quran? Well, one of the most famous things in Islam, one of the most famous beliefs, they have a lot of beliefs about Jesus. His name is Isa in Arabic. And there's actually a surah in the Quran. Surah is, is a, like a chapter in our Bible. There's surah in the Quran. And, and there's a surah which talks about Isa, about Jesus. And look what it says. And they're saying, and this is talking about the Jews and the Christians, surely we have killed the Messiah, Isa, son of Mariam, Mary, the apostle of Allah. They did not kill him, nor did they crucify him, but it appeared to them so. And most surely, those who differ therein are only in a doubt about it. They have no knowledge respecting it, but only follow a conjecture. And they killed him not for sure. This is a claim directly from the same source of inspiration that Muhammad heard the first time, saying that Jesus was not crucified. They did not kill him. And if you have Muslim friends, if you speak to just get in a conversation and talk to them, that's one of the main things they'll tell you. Jesus never died on the cross. Uh, there's a number of different theories and traditions, and some drawing on later writings say that God actually supernaturally substituted uh, Judas and put him in Jesus' place so that he was the one that actually died on the cross, and Jesus was taken up into heaven. And 
so there's, there's the claim about Jesus, and, but it's newer. It's, it's packaged better. It's shinier. It's more colorful. You've got a Jesus that doesn't die. God doesn't let him face the cross. He doesn't need to die for forgiveness. Who wouldn't want that kind of Jesus? Raised up into heaven. Well, okay, that happened once, but then like 1,200 years after that here in America, there was a guy, and his name was Joseph Smith. And Joseph Smith had a very interesting encounter. And you can actually, if you have any friends that are Mormon, Joseph Smith gave rise to what would become the Church of Latter-day Saints, what we know of as Mormons. Joseph Smith wrote his whole testimony out. You can read this online. You can get the pamphlet. You wait. They'll come to your door. and you can. I mean, it's, it's common knowledge. Look at what he read. Look at what he wrote. My object in going to inquire of the Lord was to know which of all the sects, meaning different denominations, was right, that I might know which to join. So Joseph Smith just wanted to know, hey, there are all these churches. They're all saying stuff about Jesus. How do I know how to pick the right one? No sooner, therefore, did I get possession of myself so as to be able to speak when I asked the personages who stood above me in the light which of all the sects was right. For at this time, it had never entered my heart that all were wrong and which I should join. Now, the context of that is Joseph Smith goes and, and he picks up a Bible and he finds James that says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask, and the Lord will give generously. So he just said, okay, I need wisdom to figure out which church to belong to. Lord, show me. And then it's this encounter that he was talking about where he's in the woods, and, and two people appear to him, two personages, as he says. I was answered that I must join none of them, for they were all wrong. And the personage who addressed me said that all their creeds were an abomination in his sight, that those professors were all corrupt. That, quote, they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They teach for doctrines the commandment of men. Having a form of godliness, they deny the power thereof. He again forbade me to join with any of them. And many other things he did say unto me, which I cannot write at this time. Now the angel that appeared to him, the not even angel, the persons, um, don't join any of the churches. They're all wrong. All of them. That's pretty severe. They've all gone astray. And he then started quoting scripture. That, on the thing in quotes on the last section, that was actually an amalgamation of Isaiah, Matthew, and 2 Timothy, all strung together. Do you remember what the devil did when Jesus was in the wilderness? What, what, did, he, what did he present to Jesus? What did he kept reminding him of? Anybody remember? Scripture. Yeah, Satan quoted scripture to Jesus. Huh, this is kind of interesting. When I came to myself again, I found myself lying on my back, looking up into heaven. When the light had departed, I had no strength. But soon recovering to some degree, I went home. While I was thus in the act of calling upon God, this is a, few, this is a while later, I discovered a light appearing in my room, which continued to increase until the room was lighter than at noonday. When immediately a personage appeared at my bedside, standing in the air, for his feet did not touch the floor. Not only was his robe exceedingly white, but his whole person was glorious beyond description, and his countenance truly like lightning. There's something in Scripture about Satan and an angel of light. and Anybody remember that? Remind me to look that up afterwards. The room was exceedingly light, but not so very bright as immediately around his person. When I first looked upon him, I was afraid. Remember Muhammad? But the fear soon left me. He called me by name, and he said to me that he was a messenger sent from the presence of God to me, 
and that his name was Moroni. That God had a work for me to do and that my name should be had for good and evil among all nations, kindreds, and tongues or that it should be both good and evil spoken of among all people. He said there was a book deposited, written upon gold plates, giving an account of the former inhabitants of this continent and the source from whence they sprang. He also said that the fullness of the everlasting gospel was contained in it as, he delivered, as delivered by the Savior to the ancient inhabitants. Joseph, I'm the angel Moroni. There's a book. It's buried. It has all the rest of the story. All the rest. It has some other stuff in it, some really wild, colorful stuff in it about inhabitants of North America and a lost tribe and, and all kinds of stuff. Also, not that, just that there's a book, also that there were two stones and silver bows, and these stones fastened to a breastplate constituted what is called the Urim and Thummim, deposited with the plates and that the possession and use of these stones were what constituted seers in ancient or former times, and that God had prepared them for the purpose of translating the book. The angel said, not only is there a book, and it's buried, and it's written on golden plates, but there's also a secret device, a special device, that prophets in the ancient ages used to use to see things. And he names them the Urim and the Thummim. And anybody that's taken some of the Old Testament classes here, or if you've studied through Exodus, what you find out is the Urim and the Thummim were the two, um, they were two stones that something was inscribed on them. It's mysterious because they're not mentioned a lot in Scripture, but they were worn on the breastplate of the high priest in Israel. And when you had to inquire something of the Lord with a yes-no answer, or should I do this or this, they would consult the Urim or the Thummim. Now, the act of how they actually did that, don't really know. Some think it was whichever one was picked up, some, something was shaken, and kind of like Yahtzee, whatever comes out. Um, don't really know, but they were key in Israel. They were used by the high priest. Well, this angel says, now, Joseph, they, they've actually been hidden here in North America for you to read. After telling me these things, what did he do? He commenced quoting the prophets of the Old Testament. He first quoted part of the third chapter of Malachi. He quoted also the fourth or the last chapter of the same prophecy, though with a little variation from the way it reads in our Bible. He quoted the same thing, but just with a little bit of variation. That it was new, and there was something interesting in it. Well, I returned to my father in the field, and his father was out working, and I rehearsed to him the whole matter. He replied to me that it was of God and told me to go and do as commanded by the messenger. Isn't that interesting? Muhammad wasn't sure, ran home, asked his wife. She said, yeah, it's from God. Let's talk to my cousin who's a Christian. He said, yeah, it's from God. And that was it. It was decided. Same with Joseph Smith. Dad said, yeah, that's from God. He had an encounter. He went and he dug up. He, uh, this was years later. He deciphered the books. He kept them guarded, as the testimony goes. You can read this. He, eventually, the books were to be taken up into heaven, um, lest somebody get a hold of them. And a friend of his came with him, and they would go out into the woods where he first had that, and they would pray every year, every so often. Well, one of the times they did, they had another visitation. And the person who appeared to them in the picture, there's three people. And we'll explain why in a minute, but it was one person that he says appeared to him. 
Upon you, my fellow servants, in the name of Messiah, I confer the priesthood of Aaron, which holds the keys of the ministering of angels, and of the gospel of repentance, and of baptism by immersion, for the remission of sins. And this shall never be taken away from the earth, until the sons of Levi do offer again an offering unto the Lord in righteousness. The messenger who visited us on this occasion and conferred this priesthood on us said that his name was John the same that is called John the Baptist in the New Testament, and that he acted under the direction of Peter, James, and John, who held the keys of the priesthood of Melchizedek. Which priesthood, he said, would in due time be conferred on us, and that I should be called the first elder of the church, and he, his companion, Oliver Crowley, the second. And this was on the 15th day of May, 1829, that we were ordained under the hand of this messenger and baptized. Remember Galatians? Even if we, the apostles, or an angel from heaven should come and preach a different gospel. It's fascinating to me how two of extremely fast-growing religions, especially in this century, Islam and, and Latter-day Saints, both got their start from exactly what Paul told the Galatian churches to be on the lookout for. And it wasn't, it wasn't just Paul that said it. Uh, if we look through, go ahead, Jen, run the next slide. Jesus, when he was leaving, when he was about to depart, and he was talking to his disciples, and they were on the Mount of Olives, they were across from Jerusalem, and he was saying, okay, guys, here's what's going to happen. And they asked him about when Jerusalem would be destroyed, and he said, well, let me tell you what it's going to be like. And so he described these things that were going to happen within that generation of, them, uh, of him ascending into heaven. Well, the things that he described happened, and then some of them kept happening even after Jerusalem was destroyed. Look at this. He's talking to his disciples what they will personally experience, but how applicable is this? At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Jesus warned, no, it's this gospel is what will save. And if you stand firm in this gospel, then you will endure. And there are going to be false teachers that are coming. So I'm telling you in advance so you'll know, and I'm sending you my apostles. Well, what's this gospel? What is this gospel? Paul wrote, when he wrote to the Corinthian churches, he was kind of building up to this whole thing. The entire letter of 1 Corinthians is a build-up to chapter 15. And in chapter 15, he begins by finally explaining why it's so important and what the core of his teaching is. And he says, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. No, Muhammad, Christ did not hop off the cross or was taken off the cross or was, didn't have to go through the cross. No, he died and was buried and he rose again. And then he proclaimed this gospel to Paul who passed it on to the Corinthians, who passed it on to their followers, on and on and on, and here we are. No, Joseph, 
There weren't other fuller revelations waiting to be revealed. The gospel passed on was the gospel, the same apostolic Christian gospel for 2,000 years now. Well, Jesus was talking to his apostles, and he said, this is going to happen to you. And it did happen to them. There were false teachers that rose up all during the time before Jerusalem was destroyed. Even after the Christians spread, Paul had to contend with false teachers coming and kind of twisting and turning things. On and on. Then Muhammad comes in the 7th century, and boom, angel of heaven. And people are taken in. People believe it. He believes it. A lot of Christians um, sort of debate, that like to argue and debate with other religions, and, and especially Islam, they go out of their way to try to prove sometimes, I've heard, that Muhammad didn't write, or, or that he wrote it, that he made everything up. And there wasn't any visitation, and he was just trying to, you know, gather followers and everything. And for Christians, though, it doesn't matter. Even if he did get visited by an angel, it wasn't an angel from God. So we don't have to worry about how to prove what about what doctrine and who made up what. and what, Just even taking the claims of the founder at its face value, it was not from God. And the same thing with Mormonism. I, I know Christians that try to go over and over how Joseph Smith plagiarized the King James Bible because there's passages that are verbatim in both, including the mistakes that the King James translators made are in the Book of Mormon. And it, it doesn't even matter. Even if he did experience these supernatural visitations by an angel named Moroni, by John the Baptist, and Peter, James, John, and then there was one visitation that was by the Father and the Son at the same time that he records. Even if they did experience those things, they're not from God. Because God in his wisdom saw fit hundreds of years before that would ever happen to say no. Here's the gospel, and I'm going to tell you what people are going to come to do to try to get you away from it. And so, yeah, we should expect, who knows, what the next one's going to look like. I mean, every time I turn on the new, or log on to MySpace and hear new claims about Jesus, about Christians were really copied from older pagan mystery religions, or, um, you know, Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene, and they fled to France, and they had kids, and they gave birth to the line of Merovingians, and yada, 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 and all of this stuff. On and on and on. It's the same thing. Here's the next slide, if you will, Jeff. Galatians 1, 6 through 9. Keep that in your minds, because you are going to hear false gospels all the time. And to me, it's, 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 it's screamed. The New Testament screams out, hey, don't be taken in. Don't be taken in. There was a, I'm sorry that got cut off. There's a, a church father, early, early church father, uh, within the second century BC, uh, AD, not BC, a guy named John Chrysostom. And he would actually comment on passages. He was a preacher and he would give messages, kind of like what we do today. He would take a passage of scripture and he would preach on it. And he came to this passage. And he was trying to explain to his readers why Paul used such strong language, repeats it twice, even if we preach a different gospel or an angel from heaven, let him be eternally condemned. And Paul even used this Greek word, eternally condemned. It's one Greek word, anathema. And that's the word that would translate Old Testament passages where it talked about something that was totally devoted to destruction, to be totally destroyed from the face of the earth and given up 
to God completely to face his judgment. That's what Paul was saying, that these false teachings and teachers, that God would, basically he would condemn them. And so Chrysostom, he says that uh, Paul used terms that were horrifying and more likely to astound them, his audience, for those who wished to deceive them did not do so all at once, but gently estranged them from the faith. In fact, leaving the names unchanged, for such are the wiles of the devil, not to make apparent the instruments of his hunt. For if the false teachers had said, depart from Christ, the Galatians would have shunned them, and deceivers and corruptors. As it was, the deceivers allowed them still to remain in the faith while they were undermining the whole edifice with impunity. The language these tunnelers used was covered with these familiar names as with awnings. Chrysostom's point was genius because he, he picked up right, excuse me, he picked up on exactly how Satan works, which is false Christs, aren't, people aren't going to teach false gospels by saying, hey, I got a false gospel. Do you guys want to hear it? It's really good. They're not going to do that. It's, of course it's going to sound convincing. Of course there's going to be passages where if you sit down and, and you have somebody who's very well schooled in, in their faith and uh, Islam or, or Mormonism or even the new pseudo-gospels that are popping up here and there, uh, it's going to sound convincing because that's what Satan does. They're going to use Scripture. They're going to say, oh yeah, the Bible talks about Muhammad would come. Turn back to Deuteronomy. Yeah, turn here. Look at Jesus' words about the comforter that would come. Yeah, that's Muhammad. Yeah. Just mixing and mashing and pulling and twisting and turning until it's no longer recognizable. But there's one gospel. There's, there's all of these things that are competing in our world. There's all of these different ones. But there's one gospel. And it's the gospel that can save because what Christianity, what the gospel teaches that the others don't teach is that we are in need of saving. C.S. Lewis said that something to, I'm going to misquote him, but to the effect of human beings aren't people that just need to kind of brush up their act. They're rebels who need to throw down their arms. And he was saying that all of us, that, that the, the situation we find ourselves in is, is in this area of sin that we can't do anything about. But God has given the good news, which is what gospel literally means, that he can get us out of it. If we cling to him, even if the floor gives out from under us, we're not going to go anywhere because he's got us. The other gospels, they look so attractive. No, it's not going to hold you up. No, Muhammad did not see an angel from God. Whatever he did see was not from the Lord. Joseph Smith, it sounds like Christianity. That's not going to hold me either. No, that's not the gospel. You didn't see that. And these new ones are just so weak, they're not even worth bothering with. It's the gospel, the gospel of Jesus. This is the one that holds us. This is the one we cling to. And some people in here, a lot of you may be clinging to it, and some of you may not be clinging to it. Some of you may not even know you're supposed to cling to it, and that's okay. We're glad you're here. But as a church, as pastor of discipleship, I feel very strongly one of my roles is to equip all of you when you do talk to the people that have claims 
of what Jesus really said and who he really is, and if you just really believe in their church or their scripture, then you'll get the full revelation of God. No. And I want to equip us as a body so that we can see the faults and we can say, that's not going to hold me. That's not going to lift me out of sin. A Jesus that didn't die on the cross is absolutely worthless. Because it was on the cross that he took my sin on him. No, these Gospels aren't from God. Paul warned his congregation because Jesus had warned him. And so I want us to heed this warning. And as we go, as we live, as we watch TV, as we go out into the world, to always keep that in mind. Even if we or an angel from heaven should come and proclaim another Gospel, let that one be eternally condemned. One gospel. And that's what saves us. Let's pray.